you often go into these situations with the populations that you're serving and just in my case it was with the indigenous communities across minnesota and north dakota and alaska i was very much a part of life and death there and uh, very connected but i always was asking in my own mind what exactly is my place what exactly is my role through engaged buddhism again the question isn't answered but it's essentially creating space for that question. What is my role? What is my role to actually drive skillful action and skillful means and being connected? If you think of Buddhists as quiet, gentle people who just meditate all the time, think again. Our guest this week is a proponent of engaged Buddhism a movement within the philosophy that turns contemplation into action, practice into purpose. We learn from Pete that it's not enough to acknowledge the suffering in the world. Engaged Buddhists strive to do something to relieve suffering wherever they find it. Hello, hotties. Welcome to the weekly podcast for people craving a sense of connectedness, a dose of empathy, a glimpse of the way forward, and an opportunity to engage. If your efforts to help others, friends and family, or out in the world, fall short of your expectations, or if you are confused about how to start making a difference, this episode might be for you. Pete Pearson has been a man of action his whole life, so it makes sense that he would be attracted to a practice and community that embraces action. Once an outward bound instructor, as well as a firefighter and mobile intensive care paramedic in remote and extreme areas of Minnesota and Alaska, Pete is a man who knows how to help. He's seen death up close and as a Unitarian Universalist, is it Unitarian Universalist or Universalist Unitarian? Well, they know who they are. He was a UU lay minister and he kept getting asked the big questions. Why? Why is there death and suffering? Not finding a good answer to that question eventually led him to Zen and engaged Buddhism, which, as you will hear, taught Pete to make peace with not knowing. Pete also knows the value of community and has been active in the many communities he's called home. While living here in Prescott long enough to go to grad school, he allowed himself to be recruited to run for the State House of Representatives against an incumbent Republican with dubious personal history. He agreed to run not because he thought he could win, but in order to force the public conversation on vital issues. Now working as a farm laborer in Kansas, Pete is finding solace in the physical work and in the taking care of his family through the pandemic. He's serving on the township board, doing freelance writing and nonprofit consulting, and he doesn't know what's next, but he's okay with that. In this episode, Pete reads from the essay, A Gift of Not Knowing. His story takes us to a hot, windy day at the Wounded Knee Memorial in South Dakota, and a concrete example of how to engage with history, suffering, and cultural divides. As he explains, not knowing is a good place to start. And so it is, so let's get going. All right, the tape is rolling. Check. Caffeine at optimal levels. Check. The cats are secured. Uh, he was around here somewhere. And there's just one. It's the, there's the, only the, one. The, the cat is secured. The cat is... The, the cat is not yeah. in the way right now. No, he's not on the keyboard. And the microphones are hot. Check. We are here, here together. together. Welcome, everybody, to the Here Together podcast. I'm Charles Matthews. And I'm Kelly Robersh. And we're here with an old friend, Pete Pearson, 
who broke our hearts by moving away from from our town and uh, is back in kind of the neck of the woods you grew up in, right? Kind of kind of close by the Midwest yeah, in, any, in any case. In the Midwest in general, yeah. I was born and spent my childhood in Northwest Iowa, lived most of my life in Minnesota. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the hardwood forests and the, the creeks around here are their familiar territory. Yeah. Very different than the than the pinons and and dry creeks in in really? upland Arizona. And what did you you spent you spent today doing what? What were you doing out on the farm? Uh, I'm working on a family owned uh, commercial farm slash agritourism enterprise and orchard in uh, the rural part of uh, Johnson County, the <laughs> southwest of Kansas City, uh, just about 25 miles from home. Spent the last month, uh, they're one of the largest uh, pumpkin producers. Uh, so we had uh, the U-Pick pumpkins and harvesting pumpkins for commercial, but now we're planting uh, 1,500 apple trees and mm. I'm feeling every bit of it. <laughs> mm. But it's, it's good work and I'm learning a lot, which is a good thing. Yeah, I love learning, but uh, learning, learning with that physical component can be exhausting. Mm. Uh, running just a little bit late tonight. We are having unseasonably, this morning it was chilly. It was 21 here, but uh, the days are unseasonably warm. So we are taking advantage of every moment of warm sunlight we have and doing as much work. So And planting, planting fruit trees is a, is a fundamentally hopeful act, a fundamentally yeah. optimistic act. It, it is. It's a, there's even the the people I work with on my crew. They're you know mostly younger than me, and they're some of them are similar. They've got they've all got college degrees, but they're just doing it, and they finish with something as uh, tangible as pulling the plastic off the rows after the pumpkins are harvested. When you get done, you look back, and it's a sense of having done something. But yeah, the planting it takes on a whole new metaphor. Uh, it's the the owner that we work with. Uh, He's very hopeful. Uh, the the simple act of planting is a hopeful a hopeful uh, hopeful activity. Absolutely, Kelly planted. Oh yeah, I finished up. You planted like seventy five bulbs, and I planted the last twenty five today. Yeah, out daffodils. in the sunshine, enjoying our unseasonable warmness as well. Yep, we did. Boy, several thousand square feet of vegetables this year. We have just we've been uh, everything from tomatoes to. Uh, beans, peas, uh, carrots, uh, lots of uh, peppers. We, we, I think that's been a, a lot of people have re gone back to more home, home agriculture, home, yep. home horticulture. And, but planting has been a big part of our, our life uh, since COVID. Right. Took those. And you get the, got the larder stocked up. You ready for the winter? We, uh, Suzanne, Suzanne bottle, very large freezer. Um, yeah, we, We've, and it's packed. It's hard. We're hard pressed to find a room, but we are. We're set. Good. good well good. done. Yeah, and you know, looking back over your your biography, your your bio, you know, you've you've been and done so many things. So, in addition to to writing and and working with nonprofits, you've been politically involved. You ran for state senate here in in Arizona. State house. State uh, house. One. Four years ago, uh, David Stringer and Noel Campbell, the illustrious David Stringer. Um, yep. And I realized I would have never won, but uh, my intent was just to give uh, give a voice to the realities of David Stringer. Yeah. I think we'll talk more about that later in the podcast about, mm -hmm. you know, what 
what drives you to do these things. But I'm, you know, you've been a you've been a firefighter, you've been a, a an EMT flying around the the Arctic of Alaska. But I'm just really curious, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were ten, <laughs> I still don't know what I want to be when I grew up. Uh, <laughs> just a clarification: uh, I was a mobile intensive care paramedic, uh, mm. much much higher than uh, an EMT. Um, I've lived in some ex- fairly extreme places for, from northern Minnesota for a good part of my adult life, rural, remote northern Minnesota. And earning a livelihood, I just found opportunities. And you know, one thing led to another. Uh, I ended up you know, as a firefighter, uh, fairly advanced level, but then a, a fairly advanced level paramedic. Uh, and then ended up air ambulance out of Nome and Fairbanks and spent five years uh, at a remote mining facility, gold mining facility outside of Fairbanks. Uh, very extreme situations. And throughout it all, I've always been active politically, environmentally, socially, and and done uh, the freelance writing and a lot of communications work for nonprofits. And that's been the thread throughout all. So the thread has been being of service or or being um, engaged or belonging to a community? Being engaged in a community. Um, it seems like everywhere I've gone, I've it's been fairly transient. But just in the you know the I was I wasn't even in uh, Prescott for two years when I was recruited by both Republicans and Democrats to run for the House seat, and I had to do the math to make sure I had lived there long enough. And uh, you know, Nome, Alaska. I mean, just in Fairbanks, same thing. I just something no no aptitude. I just connect with community as best I can. Right. And, how and does, I was, as a matter of fact, uh, as far as ballot issues, uh, Suzanne's mom has served. We have a remnant of a township government where we live. Uh, and she, uh, Suzanne's mom has served on the township board, and she's been it for quite some time because nobody else has run. And I, as a writing candidate, I just got, uh, I was just elected as Oxford Township trustee. And need to take a look at what this what that entails. <laughs> so we should we should just move you to Washington, and then we'll see what 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 position you get there. But yeah, I was we were reading your bio materials and and looking at the engaged Buddhism information, and that sounds really interesting and appealing. Um, do you want to tell us a little about how you got into that and what um, it what it yeah, means to you? Uh, I'll try to consolidate and be efficient with my words and time. Uh, among the ways I have made a livelihood, uh, I actually was a, a Unitarian, Unitarian Universalist uh, lay minister, and it's an oxymoron, but a professional. I was actually, uh, I served two congregations in Northeast Minnesota. How that came to be is a whole other story, but I served in the ministerial role, sent uh, mm-hmm. services, did memorial services, weddings, and a lot of them too. Uh, I ended up being chaplain on the the, the county uh, emergency medical services where I worked as well. And you're often asked, you know, when around death, especially premature death, you know, you get the the question of why, and uh, I, I I had no answer, and I, my response was, I don't know. I mean, where you know traditionally. You know, you go to memorial services, particularly in the Christian faith is, you know, God had another plan or I just from what I experienced of death, that just it just made no sense whatsoever. And um, I'd been dabbling, I think, in reading in 
Zen Buddhism ever since my college days in Missoula, Montana with Alan Watts. And something just drove me to uh, explore that a bit more. And I ended up uh, spending a couple of years in lay study in a Zen center in Minneapolis. Something about it just made sense. And the, the question of I don't know is a basic you know, you know, the openness to each moment as it evolves is is certainly a part of that. And I just in my reading and my interaction with people that I was uh, studying or in, in service with, uh, there was a, I, I, it wasn't new, but engaged Buddhism, uh, you know, you've got to get off the mat, get off the cushion and, and, and be engaged in the world in the the, the, the the branch, the strain of Zen Buddhism that I was actively involved in. And um, as I became more immersed in that, uh, I just, I was attracted to, to Thich Nhat Hanh, again, for one. He uh, was very influential. Joan Halifax in the Upaya Zen Center in uh, Santa Fe, and many, many, many others. And it, it just the sense of, uh, of openness in a situation, particularly in service, really struck home. It, it, it dovetailed with what I was seeing in service learning, in experiential education as well. I spent quite a number of years working in the outward bound system many years ago. Um, there was a, there is a, there has been, uh, and it's, it's still very much a part of it, uh, a challenge in experiential ed and service learning, challenging just the basic premise of, you know, doing service just for the sake of doing service can actually reinforce othering. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is uh, a wonderful book, Jay Roberts, Beyond Learning by Doing 2012. And it just challenged some of the premises of experiential ed about experience in itself. But it particularly what struck me is in the service learning talked about how an incident that uh, one of the people he was quoting from, uh, you know, a group from some college organization went uh, to do some service and it, there's, there's a social hierarchy involved in that quite often. So the story, they, they went to Mexico to help, to help build a house or build a church or exactly, something like that. Yeah. Help the poor um, unfortunates. Yeah. It, it, it resonated with me, uh, you know, Flying air ambulance out of Nome, Alaska. I've seen some pretty extreme places, and um, and I'll, I'll never forget. I was out on one of the larger villages, seven hundred or eight hundred people out on Saint Lawrence Island, as we're in the back of a probably an ATV or something, driving back to the village from the airstrip. Uh, I overheard their conversation about they were pointing to a, a group of people working on a building, and it was a church group from you know, Ohio or Michigan, and. And they, they had an air of cynicism in the conversation. Yeah, we're getting another building. And they, they just, they, they weren't sure what they're going to do with another building. I, there's a great article recently uh, I picked up on Detroit where an urban environmental organization went in and planted a bunch of trees in a neighborhood and they all died within the next year because no one took care of them. Well, no one asked them. Um, Joan Halifax writes in... Her latest book, again, she's the head teacher, the founder of Upaya Zen Center. I'll bring it up. She quotes uh, Dr. Rachel Naomi, and I, last name R-E-M-E-N, Riemann, I believe, when they say, when you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. And that idea of 
you know, there's a social hierarchy involved with service when you go in with the intent of helping all good intention, but helping them has strong implications that you're seeing them as unable to help themselves and you reinforcing a lot of the othering that we do on a daily basis. And the Zen organization that I don't speak for them at all, but I am uh, been active with Zen Peacemakers International, founded by uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman, uh, who was well known in quite a few circles, but uh, they, their three tenants, the way that they write their approach to service and seeing is one going into a situation, not knowing, and then actively uh, bearing witness to the situation. And from those two taking action, skillful action, uh, affirmative, appropriate action, skillful action. But this idea of not knowing really resonated with me about if you you often go into these situations with the populations that you're serving and just in my case it was with the indigenous communities across minnesota and north dakota and alaska i was very much a part of life and death there and uh, very connected but i always was asking in my own mind what exactly is my place what exactly is my role through engaged buddhism again the question isn't answered but it's essentially creating space for that question. What is my place? What is my role to actually drive skillful action and skillful means and being connected? I think that's one of the most important questions of our time, particularly, and just, you know, we're all white on this particular podcast. You know, I think it's a particular question for white and for white men. What, you know, what is my role? How do I, how do I take action without causing more trouble? And it, for most of us, it leaves us, the, the hurdle is too big because we know we're going to get, we know we're going to make mistakes. We, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to ask questions of folks of other races and other genders without seeming insensitive. We feel like we're supposed to know it all in order to be able to go to a protest, in order to be able to, to be an ally. And it just becomes this insurmountable barrier to action. And we just kind of, we just kind of say, well, screw it. Well, screw it. I'm not, if I can't, if I can't do it right, then I don't want to risk it. Right. There's like questions of vulnerability and humility all tangled up together. What are your thoughts on that Pete? I I think we're also, you, you had mentioned Charles that we have a tendency to not ask and to feel like we should know. I think, and I don't know if it's a recent phenomenon, but I think it certainly was very visible in the last six months around the the racial issues we're seeing and the policing issues that I think we, you know, many from the white community, white male community, they may have asked inappropriate or asked too soon. Um, another, we saw a, a flurry of uh, articles and interviews with people of color uh, from many backgrounds addressing, you know, giving advice to the white community. Well, they asked without witnessing. They didn't do the witnessing part. Exactly. And one of the, one of the pieces that's jumped out to me, it was actually republished um, from several years ago. You got to do the work first. Uh, Again, not knowing, bearing witness, you got to do the work first. And then when, if you do need to ask, ask from a relationship of trust. You need to do the work first. And I think that's where we 
uh, we I think we we fail in contemporary days. Um, on a broader scale, uh, I think universally, like we're in the COVID era. We don't know what normal is going to look like uh, as we move ahead. And Jade Begay with Indian Collective, uh, NDN Collective, wrote a very timely piece early in the COVID about how we cannot go back to the way things were. We just can't as a society. There's no way. And in the, these days of COVID, I think all of us need to approach, I mean, daily life, but service from a sense of not knowing. I mean, I had, uh, I had the means uh, to spend, you know, several months staying at home with still with a bit of income coming in. And that was, that, that, that was a privilege. And I, I kept saying, I don't feel guilty. I just, uh, I, I do intend and very much intend to pay it back and pay it forward. And I think we'll all have opportunities to pay it back and pay it forward in ways that we cannot even imagine now. What service mm. is going to look like as we move through these days of COVID, the, the political and racial and social unrest that we've had. Uh, oh, maybe unrest is not the right term, just the, the shaking up that we've all experienced. We don't know what our place and our role is going to be, nor should we. Be a, it, it's an incredible opportunity. You know, five and six months ago, we as a society, we stopped. We literally just stopped. And how many times do we have the opportunity to simply just stop and take a look? And when we did, I mean, on the news every day, uh, I mean, initially we were, the lines were miles long by car here in the Kansas City area for the food shelves. Well, at the same time, uh, agricultural and dairy and meat producers were throwing away tons upon tons of product because our our distribution system was so inflexible, it was not able to adapt. We are facing incredible opportunities to be more dynamic in, in our, our systems, our institutions, and our approach to being engaged in community. Yeah. And that, that kind of story gets repeated over and over again as educators try to figure out how to be dynamic and resilient. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, we we have yeah. no idea what education. I, I've been saying for years we have no idea what education is going to look like in ten years, and that was before COVID. Um, so it's it, it's really accelerated. But that you know to go to that place of not knowing again, to go to that concept of not knowing, which is a which is a deeply uncomfortable place for most people. You know, I scroll Twitter and obsess over the New York Times and the Washington Post out of this desire to know, to be able to prepare myself, to be able to prepare my family to, to just be smarter than anybody else, whatever it is. And I know, you know, when I would work with the men around mentoring teens and boys to try and help men, adult men in particular, approach a teen, not knowing what that teen needed. That was a, it was really hard to talk guys out of that tree of knowing, you know, I know what that kid needs to do because I made all of those mistakes or because of what the Bible tells me or whatever it was. They have all kinds of different ways of knowing. And to make it possible to not know is, is really challenging. Yeah. And it, uh the semantics you chose are to make it, to make not knowing possible. Um, I'm not sure if it's something we make. I think it's something that's already there mm. that we have that we're reluctant to go back to. Uh, 
uh, Suzuki um, in Beginner's Mind uh, was one of his key works. Again, it's it's not creating something new. It's just allowing and allowing just doesn't roll off the tongue for some reason, uh, but just uh, acknowledging and just living in that 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 atmosphere of not knowing creates the space for genuinely looking, bearing witness and seeing and moving forward. Accepting the truth mm. <laughs> that we really just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Charles, your comment about we make mistakes. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've made, I've made mistakes in the way I've approached uh, working with people from other backgrounds. I, I certainly have made mistakes in my life and I, you know, a number of them, they, they still, I mean, they come up and my thoughts are going so on with some heaviness. But we, with that, we need to forgive ourselves uh, we, with all good intention. Uh, we just simply need to forgive ourselves and uh, and just, again, embrace, you know, I, I didn't know. I was doing the best I could at the moment. And as you're saying that, I'm realizing that, that accepting the inability to know makes self-forgiveness more possible. It's like when I believe that I'm supposed to know. Absolutely. That I'm supposed to be smart, that I'm supposed to be better, that I'm supposed to have all my shit together. And then I use that to beat myself with when I when I fall off that pedestal that I put myself on. One of the more common uh, misconceptions about Zen Buddhism is that you control your mind, you control your thoughts. No, your mind is going and it's 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 it's. It's more of an awareness. I mean, when thoughts come up uh, and giving yourself again that space um, uh, to let them come on their own and just fade on their own as well. We don't control our, our thoughts so much. We don't, and we do control our, our action, but you know, we don't control uh, the, the thinking process. But it's, it's the awareness that we have before those thoughts become. Uh, become action, become words, become speech. Yeah. Mm. Pete, one of the reasons that we're, we're really excited to have you on this podcast, I mean, partly just because we wanted to catch up and we think you're awesome. And, but what, you know, the, the kind of the trigger event was you sending me the, the essay in, in Zen Peacemakers about traveling across you know, formerly native and, and still reservation land. And with those, with those three tenets kind of refreshed in your, in your mind of not knowing, bearing witness and, and taking, um, taking action and the encounter that you had with some other, some other folks out there. And we're wondering whether or not you'd be willing to, to read kind of the first half of that, of that essay. Yeah. This was a piece, uh, that in, it actually took, several variations on this. This is the one that was published in Zen Peacemaker International's journal. A little bit of a, oh, maybe a bit of a base of understanding. This is the short version. Uh, the longer version talks about my, this question of just not knowing what my place is in Native American indigenous communities, uh, having been either living in, working in, working with, being near ever since I was a child uh, in Northern Minnesota. Uh, we were between the Leech Lake Reservation, uh, Anishinaabe, Minnesota, Ojibwe, on the east in the White Earth Nation to the west, and just ending up 
as a kid going to powwows with my mom and just feeling that energy just go through me and it just hit me to the core college in missoula montana um in one of the longer piece talked about this most every year in the i think it was the this class a um, high school basketball championship was often between the hamilton broncos just down the road in the bitterit valley all white ranching community and the the browning braves off in the, the blackfoot community up in uh, uh, up in the highland up on highway two and when the browning braves took the court to full uh, native drum and and regalian just feeling that just go right through you and i as an adult, you know, I worked um, advanced life support ambulance that served a, at least indirectly a good part of the Leech Lake Reservation. And uh, I was in it. I was in it deep. And uh, that question of just not knowing um, you know, where what my place and role was. And I think underneath it all, acknowledging that I wanted to be a part of it. My family's cabin for 50 some years is right on the edge of that area. And it's being threatened by the Enbridge uh, pipeline. Uh, it's going to go through um, the headwaters of the Mississippi, uh, wild rice beds, uh, indigenous lands. And I want to be a part of that. And the question kept coming up, you know, what is my place? What is my place? And with that, uh, real quick, let me draw it up. As my time on the Cheyenne River Reservation ended, I looked at the map. One of the routes I could take home would take me through Pine Ridge, just south of Wounded Knee. I'd been there before, years ago. I wanted to see and feel it again. The sun was getting low in the sky when I left Eagle Butte. A hot prairie wind buffeted the car as the res radio I'd been picking up out of Standing Rock faded to static. After a cup of gas station coffee in Rapid City, I drove until sleepiness got the better of me. I pulled into the casino hotel west of Pine Ridge and got a room for the night. The next morning, I got on the road and drove across more rolling prairie. Heavy, low clouds brushed across the hills. I stopped at a convenience store in Pine Ridge to top off the tank and get some breakfast. A smiling native kid, maybe 18, behind the food counter greeted me with, Yihana Washte, what will you have? His cohort working the grill laughed, he thinks he's the shits. He's in a Lakota class and is trying it out on everyone who comes in here. What does that mean? I asked and repeated phonetically. Ihana washte. Good morning, he answered, quite pleased to share. I ordered a breakfast sandwich and ended up with more food than I need all day, eating one in the parking lot and sharing the rest with the man who hit me up for a couple bucks that I really did not have. The clouds broke as I drove north to Wounded Knee. I pulled into the parking area at the memorial to the 1890 massacre. I pushed against the wind to open the car door. An older Native American woman sitting behind a table with information and beadwork for sale had the attention of a white couple, the only other visitors that morning. I heard her tell the couple the history of the place, of how the United States 7th Cavalry opened fire on freezing, starving Lakota men, women, and children, killing some 300. She told a story of how U.S. soldiers were paid for the scalps and ears of adults and the hands and feet of the children and infants. A younger man was burning a bundle of sage, smudging, bowing over the rising smoke, brushing it over his head and body. I waited for him to finish. Yihanawashte rolled off my tongue before I could catch it and consider my intent. He looked me over. With all due respect, I asked, nodding to the burning sage, may I? He motioned that yes, I could share in the smoke. I leaned forward and drew the smoke over my head and down my body. 
I walked across the road and started up the hill to the memorial site. On top, I was alone. Brightly colored prayer flags fluttered along the fence surrounding the sparse burial grounds. There was not a sound, not a passing car, not a voice, just the wind. On my way back down the hill, I met the couple I'd seen at the information tables. They stopped, looking a bit shaken. Have you been here before, the man asked, his voice lowered in respect to the place. It's been a while, but yes, I've been here. You look like you know what to do here. I'm, he paused, I just don't want to do anything wrong. I thought for a moment. You're okay, I told him. Just go up with an open heart. Just be here. They looked up the hill, then at each other, and made their way up. Hmm. Hmm. Thank we'll you, Pete. It. Okay, good place to leave it. Great. Yeah. We just invite you know everybody listening right now to just feel whatever you're feeling, having heard that, having maybe envisioned being there, the wind, the prayer flags, pushing the car door open against the wind is very evocative for me. I can feel that in my body. Mm-hmm. And we'll be right back with more for the Here Together podcast. If you are enjoying this conversation about Buddhism and community, go way back and listen to episode nine, Diving into the Heart of the Dragon with Molly McGinn. Molly is also a Zen practitioner, educator, and activist. She tells a compelling story about the pursuit of self-knowledge and community that led her to a year at a Zen monastery, into Tibet, and to the rim of the Grand Canyon with a high-ranking member of the Chinese Communist Party. Seriously. Seriously. We'll put a link in the show notes so that you can find that episode easily. Also in the show notes, you'll find merch! Merchandise, swag, logo wear, hottie gear, gift ideas. The featured merch this week remains our I Did a Science t-shirt, mug, and sticker. Perfect for the adventurous, curious, volatile, changeable, distractible person in your life. Your purchase supports this free podcast project. And welcome back. We are here together. Oh, welcome back. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping everybody had a little moment to to breathe and think and and feel some feel some prairie wind mm-hmm. blowing past them. And can you remind us, Peter, the the three principles again of engaged Buddhism? I do do want to just put a disclaimer. I'm not speaking for. Zen peacemakers, I am in, involved, I am engaged with them. And Zen Peacemakers International is just one organization. You see the premises and the three tenets uh, in varying shape and forms. Thich Nhat Hanh has a longer list. The three as articulated by Zen Peacemakers International, though, uh, entering a situation of not knowing, again, giving yourself, just embracing the space of not knowing. You're not going uh, in with too rigid idea, belief on what is happening and what should be done. And from that, being able to bear witness to the situation, the situation as they really, truly are. And from those two, taking action, taking skillful action, taking right action. I think uh, one of the basic premises of the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, but skillful action. So I'm I'm conflating 
Zen peacemakers and and engage Buddhism because engage Buddhism is is bigger. It's the movement. It, yeah. it, it's a movement within uh, the Buddhist community uh, in general. But in my background again in uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, I don't want to call it a branch. It's just a movement within of okay. Um, you know, you you do you sit you sit zazen. That's your practice, and that is a starting point. But as many people have articulated in many different ways. At some point, you got to get your butt off the cushion and be engaged in the world. That's kind of a theme for us of late is how to get off the couch and how to get off the cushion is another aspect of that. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that looked like for you, Pete? I mean, we already talked about you running for office, but you you seem to have spent very little time on the couch, at least from uh, the little bit again, of your bio. Yeah, I think uh, before running for office, uh, I may not have been able to articulate it, or even in my own mind, uh, community has been very important. I've lived in places that were extreme remote and very small, and just being part of community is is is, is critical. Uh, living in Nome, Alaska for two years, you know the the sun just pokes above the southern horizon for a couple hours every day. The far southern horizon, and you know people ask, you know, oh God, I I would never be able to make it up there as all the darkness in the wintertime. And how do you do it? And the answer is very simple. Either do or you don't. Uh, and if you don't, you end up on a flight out to Alaska Psychiatric in Anchorage. And I, as a matter of fact, pilot, I did that a lot. But uh, you either do or you don't. It kind of sums up Zen Buddhist perspective. You either do or you don't. And uh, part of being able to uh, not just survive in Nome, Alaska, but thrive is being engaged in and with community. And I think that's where it really started to take, uh, again, I was being able to articulate in my own mind, in my own words, uh, a little bit more. I had this realization today that community doesn't make itself, that we have to do something in order to have community, to have a, an engaging experience yeah. with community, because we have we live in this neighborhood and we're not very engaged in it, and it isn't there for us in the way mm-hmm. that our community, you know, of of hearts here in Prescott and around the world, is there for us. What would you say is is the recipe for? for creating community. I don't, I don't think there is a set recipe. I, I, the word that you just used is what was in my mind. Uh, it's a creative process. Mm-hmm. You know, we moved into a circa 1970s suburban little section here surrounded by mostly rural. Now it's uh, development is encroached with an eyesight. We have a Walmart within oh, about a half a mile, maybe a mile. Since we've been here, the couple of years we've been here, we actually do know our neighbors and we know who they are. And and we live in a place that, again, our HOA, our Homeowners Association, is actually very active, not in telling people what color Christmas lights to put up. But uh, although I am butting heads with them right now, they're proposing to limit solar. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. To... to, to, to Backyards only, and no, no, no. Um, we'll we'll see where that goes. But they, they're mostly an effective. But in that, they also have community events. We in the days of COVID, they had a. They actually brought live music to the little park area we have uh, in the corner of the section here, and 
I've actually gotten to know a lot of our neighbors and we, we knew our next door neighbors very well in Prescott as well. And that's something you know, a lot of people can't say that they know their neighbors. And it, it's a creative process, uh, very much so. I don't think there's a set recipe. And I'm guessing, you know, just for me, you know, I know, I know, quote unquote, that all Stop of that, all, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stop knowing, you know, all of the neighbors who surround this particular house that we're in, all of them had signs for a political candidate that I'm not a fan of, <laughs> you know, and I've put them in that box. So there's, I feel f- fear because I know something about them. Quote unquote, that, for the yeah, people who are not watching. Yeah, that there's, you know, that there's no, that there's too much of a hurdle there. And I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that one of the ways into community, just like I used to train the mentors at Boys to Men to say, you don't know, you don't know what mm-hmm. this kid is going through. You don't know what this kid needs. You know, why am I, why am I making up a whole story and a whole outcome about my relationships with my neighbors based on the sign they had in their yard? And there's been there's been a lot of commentary, media commentary about uh, you know, initially they encourage you've got to talk to these people, you've got to engage with them. But there was a I, I don't remember if it was a New York Times piece, but there was a piece that stood out to me. It's been about no oh, eight or nine months. It says you don't have a dialogue with this people with this this level of and the, the images of the this the hate filled faces from the rallies uh, that you don't have a dialogue with that you voted out. Well, we voted it out, and, but they're still here. They, they haven't gone it, anywhere. Voting voting it out isn't Donald Trump is a phenomenon. Uh, I don't I, I don't credit him personally as a as a human being responsible for all this i think he manipulated it but he it's a phenomenon and the phenomenon does not go away it's it's more evident than it's ever in a lot of people have made the comments that it was actually probably a good thing to that he was around for the time he was to at least show us that no we are a terribly flawed society that needs a lot of work. And I don't know where to start. I mean, yes, you go have these dialogue with these people and most of them, they're just diehard Republicans. And then, you know, that's just a reality. I can accept that, but um, it's the, I'm not sure where a dialogue is going to lead these days. This is a classic case where I don't know. I don't know how to engage with these people. Um, uh, our congressional district that we live in uh, went blue two years ago. Sharice Davids, uh, the second, yeah. by a matter of minutes after the woman from New Mexico, but she won overwhelmingly uh, in the re-election just the other day. Uh, and, and I, we had a, we actually did. Uh, my partner's mother was a registered Republican for over 60, 60 years. She switched. Wow, and she actually wanted me to go out and find a Biden sign, and and they they were hard to come by, and I actually did find one, and she put it in the yard, and you know what? We're not the only ones. Uh, it turns out our next door neighbors and several, quite a few people in the neighborhood uh, actually were very supportive of us putting the sign up. You know, as you're talking, Peter, I, I'm feeling sadness come up in me because of the injustice that I feel that I'm doing by pretending that I know. 
Mm. and how that shuts off possibilities. It's like, you could have told me a few months back that your mother had been a Republican for 60 years, and I would have said, well, I know how she's going to vote. And that's, parents, you know, that's, that's me creating somebody else's future for them. That's not right. Yeah. There's possibility of switching, but short of switching, it's a big question we have a society have right now. I mean, how do we go into this not knowing when you're confronted with just such explicit, at least if not outright racism and xenophobia, at least condoning and uh, emboldening it? Uh, I don't I, I don't know. I have no idea. It's really challenging when we're confronted with images of children in cages on the border when when we see environmental regulations just on the scrap heap. It's it's really challenging to walk into unknowing. Like how do we at the one hand know that that is wrong, know that it is wrong to put kids in cages for whatever reason and not know how my neighbor feels about that and to let them have space to be who they really are. Yeah. And there is a, this idea of not knowing, um, it may seem as an oxymoron, but it's part of the, there are boundaries, the bowling analogy, there are gutters, the gutters mm. are pretty wide, and there, there are moral precepts as well. Uh, again, Buddhism has moral precepts, they're not commandments, thou shalt not, but there are precepts weighing in your mind the consequences and the intentions of action and speech and livelihood. Um, and certainly, it is not an oxymoron. It's not a contradiction in a non-dualistic way of thinking of uh, going into a situation like that is not knowing how to respond. But yes, something is something can be wrong. I mean, something can overtly be against uh, doing doing no harm. And then how to react to that, how to respond to that, I should say more appropriately. That's where the not knowing comes in. So not knowing how to respond to, to kids in cages or action is pipelines required. or whatever, but action yeah. is required. Action, hmm. And you don't, don't just sit and contemplate it. Action is required. What that action is will vary from moment to moment to person to person as I will finish this uh, short essay of mine, but uh, when I did take the initiative to ask one of our hosts on the Cheyenne River Reservation, what exactly can I offer? Uh, their response was, just bring what gifts you have. Bring what gifts you have. And that was a wonderfully open-ended response. I mean, th those gifts will vary from person to person, from moment to moment, from situation to situation. But bring those gifts you have. Mm. Some people will take the step. I mean, you know, how far will I go? I mean, the Enbridge pipeline threatening the indigenous lands around my my, my family's uh, literally 1920s little log cabin in northern Minnesota. It's threatening both water quality in that area and some of the most pristine, some of the clearest lakes in the country are up there. Uh, you can see bottom at our place at 20, 20 plus feet, but it's surrounded by indigenous uh, lands, both uh, outright and seeded and contested, but the wild rice beds, the Monoman beds, uh, hundreds of square miles of Monoman uh, beds are being threatened. You know, people are getting rested up there. They're starting to get encampments set up and just how far will I go? Uh, I, I don't know. 
is, is my place is my place there in what shape or form will my place be there i'm not sure yeah <sighs> kelly kelly wrote postcards to voters this election because she's an artist and got to got to bring her bring her gifts to that yeah, bring what gifts you have yeah uh i i wanted to do i wanted more leadership in the election i i i wanted i i wanted and and eventually I just had to give in and just volunteer and just make phone calls. And I ended up, I ended up loving it. And it turns out that's one of my gifts. Yeah. I was not as involved nearly as I wanted to be, but again, the COVID situation, as I kept saying, it is a bit of, no, no, I don't want to call it guilt, but I'm aware of that it is a privilege not to, uh, but I, I, as I said earlier, uh, we will have, I feel like I need to pay it back and pay it forward and someday someday, hopefully soon, I'll be able to, but again, in ways that I may not even realize are possible right now. Well, let's take a, let's take another little break and then let's come okay. back with that, with that piece. Let's go back to, uh, back to the prairie for a bit, mm. but for now, invite everybody to think about what is your, what is your gift that you could bring? What is your gift that you could bring? And we'll be right back with here together. You know, Pete drops a lot of names in the first couple of parts of this podcast. Uh, lots of names of Buddhist thinkers and activists. Be sure to check out our extensive show notes for links to books, writings, essays, and websites by and about those folks. We want to make sure that you have the resources to deepen your understanding of whatever it is we talk about in each week's podcast. So go to here-together.us and navigate to the podcast gallery for show notes for all of our back catalog. And if you find this podcast helpful or valuable to you, especially during COVID times, would you leave a testimonial comment or review through Podchaser, iTunes, or on our website? It's like getting us a present that costs you nothing but a few minutes. We produce this podcast for free with no ads, and it would mean a lot to us to get your feedback and comments. Go to podchaser.com slash here together to leave a five-star rating and tell us what you love about here together. Okay. Now back to wrap up the show with Pete Pearson. I love the, I love the stories and I love the, uh, your connection to the, <laughs> you keep seeing the wild rice beds and maybe because oh. it's dinner time, I'm like, mm. yeah, I'm like, I don't know what that um, is, but I like it. I, I, I should emphasize when you come back, um, what you buy in a grocery store is not wild rice. It's uh, that is patty. That is commercially grown, produced patty rice. The real stuff you'll find in shallow, colder, clean lakes in northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Manitoba, Ontario. And you need to have a, a permit to harvest it. But it's literally hand harvested. What you see in the bags in the grocery store is that homogenous dark. No, this is very irregular, bigger, and oh, yeah, it cooks up. Oh, it's just, there's no way to describe it. It is incredible. I, I make everything from cranberry wild rice burritos to just as a side dish. I encourage. It's a little. It's a little pricey. Uh, it depends on the harvest each year, and it's, it's actually gone up, but. You can buy it direct from uh, the White Earth, uh, and there's a number of uh, vendors out of the Leech Lake and uh, 
uh, tribe, the White Earth tribe, actually, the White Earth Land Recovery Project actually sells, uh, as do Red Lake and Ooh, a lot we should of other- put links to that on the um, show notes. Yeah, you know, I, I can actually, and Winona LaDuke, uh, she is now behind Out of the Earth fighting the pipeline, but she's also got what is called Winona's Hemp and Heritage Farm. But they uh, they have uh, Monoman. Uh, cool. And I can imagine yeah. it's funding their efforts. Exactly. It's funding uh, their effort. And it's from it's actually from the White Earth, the White Earth Band. Uh, they've got a they actually have a, an agricultural uh, online store cool. and a physical store as well in a little dinky town west of us up in Minnesota. I can get you that link. So we're just going to include this. We're going mm. to include this conversation in the podcast because we want everybody to be really hungry. And a little to- bit of education. What you are buying in the grocery stores might be good. It is not, I emphasize, it is not wild rice. It is, a lot of it's actually grown in California. Large industrial farming practices uh, in just irrigated, heavily irrigated uh, bog simulation. So anyway, welcome back everybody to the Here Together mm-hmm culinary podcast <laughs> and we're here with pete pearson who's making me hungry talking about the real wild rice which is called monoma i'm guessing monoman monoman sounds amazing great well speaking of taking us places you've been taking us all over the place we've been to we've been to Nome, alaska with the sun just peeking over the the horizon uh we've been to lakes where you can see the bottom 20 feet down with uh growing on them we've been uh to the prairie with the wind blowing so hard that you have to push the door open to get there and and i'd like you to to take us back and finish the story of being at the the wounded knee Memorial. I go on in the essay, this not knowing what to do in these places, in these moments, was something I knew myself. Spending much of my life around reservations and native communities, I come to feel how the drumming and singing at powwows cut right through me and struck something, some place deep to the core. I question, though, what place I had or should have in such things. Work in education and employment programs on the reservations of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe led to my slowly being invited to banquets and powwows, then into people's homes. I felt self-conscious when conversations turned to injustice and action. My place seemed to be best defined by my uneasy silence. My work evolved to that of paramedic, where ambulance runs reached parts of the Leech Lake Reservation in Minnesota, then a brief stint on the pre-oil boom Fort Berthold Reservation. Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, in North Dakota. Working air ambulance in remote Alaska, families in Savunga and Anaktuvik Pass thanked us with bags of muktuk, wedges of the skin and blubber of the whales they harvest on a limited basis under the Alaska Native exception to federal regulations. I shared some of the most intimate moments of life and death with the people who draw their relationships with place, with land and landscape, not in generations, but in the living, in the creation stories and in creation itself. I was in it. The questions of my role in these places, though, lingered and grew. My questions brought me back to a lapsed Zen practice and then to South Dakota and the Cheyenne River Lakota with Zen Peacemakers International. In the three tenets of engaged Buddhism in the practice of ZPI, of not knowing, bearing witness, and from these taking action, the questions seemed to find a place to rest for a moment. Listening to our Lakota hosts, My silence was rooted not in uneasiness, as it had been in the homes and reservations back in Minnesota, 
but from attention. In time, I shared my own story of the questions I'd felt about my place and my role. When a moment presented itself, I asked their hosts for their thoughts. Just offer what gifts you do have, they answered. I watched the couple make their way up the hill to the Wounded Knee Mass gravesite and then walk back to the covered area at the parking lot. I joined the woman who'd been telling stories of the history of the place. She spoke of the injustices her family and her people know and feel, then became quiet. She looked up the hill. If you could, she asked, would you go back? The wind blew. She looked at me. If you could turn back time, would you go back? Would you? I don't know, I answered. I really don't. The gift I had to offer in that moment was not a decisive action, nor for that matter was it inaction. The gift was not knowing. From that comes the space offered by simply being there in a place and in a moment that opens for the question to unfold. I don't know. And that is a very good place to start. Hmm. hmm. Thank you, Pete. You know, it seems it seems so strange and even backwards in, in some parts of my head, but that the idea that not knowing is kind of a one size fits all tool, that it, that it is proper for interacting with my neighbors. It is, it is the right approach to interacting with people of different colors, different backgrounds, that it's the right approach to my own desire to be active. What am I to do? And it's, it's a it's a big shift. I mean, it's, again, especially for for guys, action is so part of the masculine ideal and the the idea of being quiet for a bit can seem really strange. But I like how in that in your essay you talked about two different kinds of silence that you experienced. There was the silence of of being uncomfortable uh, earlier in your life. And then a silence of of attention, of, of mindfulness. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And and you and it seemed like you were witnessing in that silence as well. Yeah, absolutely, because and, you didn't and, and, you didn't pull away from her when she talked about the atrocities that her people had experienced. You were there, and you held it. You were open to what she had to say. You didn't draw away or close up. Our, I think nature is to have a response. We don't need a response. Um, just taking it in, I think, is, is in often cases more than enough. You know, with hindsight, when I've looked at this and revised this piece over time over the last six to eight months, um, just asking in the that retreat, uh, the Zen Peacemakers International retreat I was a part of on the Lakota with the Lakota people, uh, the Cheyenne River, Lakota. I asked the question when a moment did present itself in a small group. I asked just what, just, just what do they want or need from us, and what should our role be? And with hindsight, I probably, I definitely did not need to ask, but I may, maybe even shouldn't have asked the question. Uh, it may not have been the time or, or the or the place. Uh, just being able to embrace the question itself and live in the question is more important than asking the question. <sighs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, living the question. 
So what's next for what's next for you, Peter? What what other projects do you have going on besides planting fifteen hundred apple trees? I'm going to take them out of Colfinder tonight because my shoulder and wrist hurts so much. Um, I, I'm in the process. I've continued to do some freelance writing uh, and I'm doing some. Uh, some grant writing. I want to say it's pro bono, but uh, for a couple of small nonprofits and networks here in Kansas City, uh, the Kansas City area, one of the institutions and one of the systems that we need to address uh, the, the its inefficiencies and ineffectiveness has been so much illuminated through the COVID situations are food production and distribution systems. And I've been working with a couple of small. Uh, one small urban uh, or urban farming. I, I, it's not gardening. They are they're producing over. I think they donated over ten thousand pounds of produce a couple of years ago to local food shelves, and a, a network, an evolving network here of uh, that go from production to uh, processing to distribution. Uh, I'd like to get actively involved with them um, again to pay the bills while you're writing grants for these people, waiting to see what the results are going to be. Um, I go back to work on Monday. I'll be working at Geringer's Orchard and Farm um, in Gardner, Kansas, about 20 miles west of us. And that, that's paying the bills right now. Simple things like that during these days, these strange times, I am more than thankful mm. for. Pete, do you have a, do you have a science for our, for our listeners? Do you have a, 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 a prescription for them to follow, something to try out? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question and I don't want to, I don't want to be too prescriptive. I think um, just as a personal practice that requires intent, intention, and requires um, a, a conscious effort at times, um, I think the best I can offer is the next time you're in a situation in service or dialogue in a, around community politics, and you're not sure just what you should or could do you're not terribly sure how to respond just acknowledge that moment just acknowledge just in your own mind just tell yourself this is one of those moments i don't know and that's okay and, it, and, not, and not that it's okay it's a good place to start it's a good place to start i i suspect especially during these days of all the uh, injustices that have been illuminated uh, through this COVID. You can't turn away. COVID has been, I've noticed things just being able to stay home. Uh, I, I've, I've noticed the natural history in our backyard is incredible. I, I, I have a bird list of, I think I hit 76. Uh, we had Northern water thrushes in our backyard during migration this year. Uh, I've expended my life list. We had a Mississippi kite in our oh. backyard. I've never seen it. But there's a metaphor there, but we also can't turn away from the social and the, the economic injustices that this COVID situation has, has illuminated just glaringly. We cannot, COVID makes it impractical, if not impossible, to turn away from. So we do have opportunities here. And if our first knee-jerk reaction is, what can I do? What can I do? Maybe we don't know. That's okay. That is a good place to start. Pete Pearson, thanks so much for giving us nothing. <laughs> giving us some space. Giving us some space. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to connect, reconnect with uh, with Prescott. The community 
is a metaphor and it's a model. Um, and there's so much genuine goodness that I felt there around the very visible xenophobia um, and the hostility that we see around that. But I do. I just remember such goodness, the social just how vital and vibrant that community really is. You had to look for it, but when you found it, oh, it, it, it yeah, both Suzanne and I, we miss it. We give any of you from Prescott College and just our old cohorts uh, back there, hello. And we're thinking of you, keep the faith in all its shapes and forms. We will, we will. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. really glad that I got a chance to, to reconnect with Pete and I, and I feel like I know him even better. I definitely know him even better now than I did when he was actually yeah. living in Prescott. I did not know his background and travels went from, you know, Nome, Alaska to northern Minnesota to uh, the retreat center in Santa Fe, just all over the place. Yeah, so, I had no idea. Yeah. And I didn't even know that he practiced that he practiced Buddhism when he was here. So this was a real insight into kind of the inner the inner man. Yeah, I didn't realize that he was kind of new to town. He was so ensconced in the community that I just assumed he was, you know, a pillar of the community who had been here for ages. I had no idea. And and Pete did something really important for me. He kind of sort of closed a loop for me mm. around Buddhism and the idea of detachment. I struggled with it so hard. I, I studied Buddhism kind of academically back in college and it and Zen Buddhism in particular and it and it the idea of detachment or non-attachment always bothered me, especially as a younger man. Mm-hmm. Just like how a can, passionate younger man. Yeah, like how, how can you just sit there? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's great to observe the world and to and to to be um, a witness and all that stuff and and to, and to cultivate a sense of, of inner peace, but you can't just sit there in the face of, you know, everything that's, that's this wrong. This is kind of the, the missing piece for you, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand that it, that it wasn't really, that, that Zen Buddhism wasn't anti-attachment. It was really this non-attachment, this mm. sort of third thing outside of the duality of, of being attached or being completely passive. You know, and I think a lot of American Zen practitioners and experts have incorporated kind of the Western desire for engagement, the Western desire for action into Buddhism in a way that I think is right for our time. Oh my gosh, yes. This mix of cultivating inner peace and equanimity while the outside world is not peaceful or equal. Well, it kind of comes back to our, the podcast sort of procedure of taking care of ourselves so that we can be in relationships so we can be of service and the the daily practice of of meditation and mindfulness help us stay like you said in right. that equilibrium with ourselves so that we can have more energy and reserve to do more in the community and to do it right yeah not from a place of of neediness or or greediness. Yep. Or judgment or, or pain or, or fear. I mean, I, I can feel a lot of pain and fear when I look at the world and I can, and I can also feel a lot of ambition and, and drive and hope and all of those powerful emotions 
don't necessarily drive my action into the correct place unless it's bolstered and surrounded by this uh, willingness to not know and to be a witness first. That's really yeah. hard, man. That's so hard to just... Right? How can we engage in a way that lets every other people engage too so that we can do more, that we can get more done? Yeah. And it's not a misery, so... Yeah. Yeah. Joyful I find, action. I feel a real sense of relief remembering that I don't have to have the answer. You know, that, that, and that not having the answer won't keep me from being effective. You know, if, if I can just stay present and curious, and if I can wade in with respect and humility, then, you know, maybe I can actually be of service instead of feeling like I'm, you know, I have to know what I'm doing in order to start getting involved. But it's like, no, let's go and let's find out what people want and do that instead of giving them something that's not useful to them. Yeah, and I think even the, yeah, there are divides, you know, all of our important work to do as a culture and as a community are across divides, across mm -hmm. the male-female divide, across the rich-poor divide, across the, the divides of color and sexuality and all that stuff. So it's, you know, you said them, and I think... Exactly, one exactly. Of things, one of the things, you know, to just be witness to is like, okay, when I start thinking of them mm -hmm. instead of us, okay, I don't know. I don't know how to stop doing that. I don't, I don't know how to stop thinking right. about them but I'm going to pay attention. To right, that. just noticing it is huge. And I'm not going to let that hold me back from continuing to be in that space, continuing mm -hmm. to be in that awkward space. You know, when I like misgender a trans person or when I uh, you know, uh, whatever, whenever I make a make a mistake, make it's a white that man's mistake. Aware and unskilled place that we talk about that's so uncomfortable of, you know, and and that's what I was thinking about the couple he encountered at Wounded Knee. You know, they had they had an awareness that they could do something wrong. You know, they weren't yeah. completely blind to the history and and that there were traditions that, you know, they might blunder over or something. Sure, sure. And I felt that way my most of my life of like partly just a heightened a, a sense of getting it wrong all the time, but yeah. but also uh, uh, an understanding of history and an understanding of culture and and the fear of getting it wrong has certainly kept me from getting involved. But it's an excuse. It's like, it's so convenient to go, well, I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm just going to stay over here on the sidelines. I think those days are over. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I have used it as an excuse as well. And yeah, those days are over. There's still so much to do. Still so much to do. And I don't know. I exactly, don't either. Exactly what I'm going to do. But we're not going to let it stop us. No, and we do want to encourage you to tell us what you're not knowing or what you feel like you're knowing. Come come engage with us in the Here Together Community Lab on Facebook. Continue the conversation. A lot of the people who are interacting on there are our previous guests, our wonderful previous guests. Mm -hmm. You get to also see pictures of the, uh, the still living podcast and... Hey. And the former podcast. And the former podcast. Formerly living podcast. He still shows up in there in, oh, yeah. in digital form. Also, check out our merch on here-together.us. That's us. 
follow us on Instagram at RocketFeather1. And this is Charles Matthews. And Kelly Robert, wishing you the fortitude to be with your not knowing, the empathy to be a loving witness for your people, and the grit to get in there and do something to make it better for someone. Thank you for being here together with us. We love love you. you. The Here Together podcast is a project of Rocket Feather Creative.